I need to be able to have unconditional love and conditional like for my CEOs. I'm Kelly Hoey, host of Broad Mike. I speak with the most accomplished entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders about the issues that matter in building a business. You will get the inspiration as well as the picks and shovels you need to become a better entrepreneur. Be inspired, take action, think broad. Let's address this. There aren't enough women in VC. There's a common stereotype of what it takes to be a venture capitalist. It's someone with a computer science degree who went to business school and ran a startup. The door seems closed to anyone who doesn't meet those requirements. Meet Jessica Peltz-Zatulov, the exception to this rule. Jessica is a Madison Avenue veteran turned venture capitalist. She's at KBS Ventures, a corporate VC fund that is investing in transformative technologies that the big media and advertising brands are seeking. Today, Jessica will answer many of the most common questions about VCs, where a corporate VC fits into the landscape, what she looks for in founders, the homework entrepreneurs should do in advance of meeting VCs, and how to avoid the most common mistakes made with investors. Jessica puts a refreshing and very human face on venture capital when she talks about the unconditional love, conditional-like relationship she has with the entrepreneurs she funds. Keep listening to more of Jessica's tough love advice. It will make you a lot smarter about the type of money you should be seeking. What inspired you to get so involved in technology? Oh my gosh, so... I first started my career in New York in 2003. Um, went to school at Indiana University, had a degree in marketing. Uh, originally started interviewing for jobs at large media agencies in Chicago. Uh, had a great internship at this little boutique firm called Kelly Scott & Madison. Uh, was interviewing at Starcom. Went through the whole job interview process. Knew exactly where I was going to live. Figured, of course, I'm going to get this job. How could I not get this job? Did not get the job. Crushed devastated. Uh, I was 22 years old. My whole plan that I had for myself just completely went poof. Uh, So what did I decide to do? I was like, I'm going to New York. Uh, Obviously, I'm from Minnesota originally. I shouldn't say obviously, but I'm from Minnesota originally. you just say Minnesota again and we'll all know you're from Minnesota? Minnesota. I am from Minnesota. Minnetonka, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Uh, which only comes out when I say a few words. But um, point is, all my friends from high school all my friends from college there all moving to Chicago, so I had to take the road less traveled and move to New York. Um, so backpacked for a couple months, thought through what I wanted to do. Ultimately went to a, a media agency, so I started my career in communications planning around AOL. Um, back in the time with the little running man, remember that guy? Uh, from there, transitioned to Zenith Media, which is a top global media agency. And that's really where I, I first got into the world of brands. So I started my career in the print department. Print morphed into digital. Digital morphed, morphed into mobile. Um, so I was working and, and running brands like Verizon Wireless, H&M, Gucci, Puma, 20th Century Fox. Um, started there as an assistant. When I left, I was a VP. And reflecting back on that time, um, so it's 2009. And, and if you look at that point as like an inflection point in the market for mobile, super interesting time. It was when we hated the iPhone because it was locked into the AT&T. Uh, I was part of the team that launched the Android device. Droid does. as like this monster competitor that's going to take on Apple with this creative that was all weird and robotic. 
uh, and, and we thought only men would buy it. But point being is something that, that I really recognize is, you know, this device is going to change everything. And our strategy really started switching away from the switchers. So originally our strategy was more about, you know, stealing customers between AT&T and Verizon and Sprint. But it became more about getting people to upgrade to their data plans and getting people outside of the clamshell phone into these smartphones, these Blackberries. And I really just recognize that this is going to be a huge new opportunity and a huge transformation in the market. So I naturally started gravitating more towards mobile and emerging technology. I, I remember a meeting uh, with, with one, I think it was the publisher of Sports Illustrated. And uh, we were talking about this magical device, this magical device that is going to change everything in digital and in print. And you're going to be able to tap the screen and you're going to see the video of the home run that they're talking about in the article. And what were we talking about? The iPad. The iPad was launching. And, you know, that to me was just such a light bulb moment of, of the way the industry was changing. So I naturally became really the point person at the agency to gravitate more towards emerging technology and really be the point person to aggregate all those different opportunities and start pushing media companies around things like metrics um, and transparency around those types of things. Um, and kind of throughout that journey, uh, I started working with startups and really started discovering startups on the side, reading Lean Startup and some different startup books, Startup Nation, and um, obviously fell in love with the space. It was it was love at first sight. Love at first sight. Well, you know, I want to get into what you're doing at KBS. I want to get into mm-hmm. you know KBS as as an, a strategic VC, what all that means. But before we leave this journey, initial journey of your career. Really, so much of what you've done is like future-proofing your career. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. As, as, a, as, a, as a, a trait that people need to have in terms of what absolutely. they need to do to future-proof. Absolutely. So, so once I started working with um, founders on the side, I just really recognized that this is the direction things would be going. My clients were so excited that I was bringing these technology solutions to them. But at the time in the industry, around 2012, this is when programmatic was really starting to pick up. Um, things were shifting much more in that area. But that's one area that a lot of people gravitated towards in terms of something that was really moving. Um, but for me, I really saw this collaboration between startup and brands being something that's going to continue to be more and more prevalent. Um, but at, being at a large agency, knowing that there's these relationships with huge corporations like a Microsoft or a Facebook or um, Yahoo, whatever it was at the time, um, I believe that where I was at in the agency wasn't going to allow me to explore that passion and, and the direction that I believe the market was going to go. Um, so I ultimately took a took a leap and went to a startup myself, a startup called Evolution. So talk about future-proofing and, and kind of de-risking some things. I went from a, a very cushy window view of Manhattan to a, a four-person scrappy startup, um, which was just such an amazing experience. So the premise of Evolution is connecting early-stage startups and brands for pilot programs and mentoring and partnerships. So brands would come to us. And essentially, provide, we would provide more of a strategic context around the startup space. So brands, you know, they really didn't know um, what, op- what opportunities were available. They didn't know how to, look at, how to look at different startups. They didn't know how to evaluate them. They didn't know how to sift through all the noise. So it was an incredible learning experience, just not only in terms of developing relationships with founders and technologists, but also just really recognizing this disparity and this disconnect that startups and brands had in terms of how they collaborate. Um, so it was through there that I, I had built out a strategic partnership network of about 300 different accelerators and incubators and investors and shared workspaces from around the world across 22 countries. So when we would get a brief in from a Kraft Foods, 
we could reach out to our contacts from Auckland, New Zealand to Tel Aviv to San Francisco and just get a monster pipeline of startup talent that way. Um, so having those relationships has also just been so incredibly helpful in terms of unlocking different opportunities and also finding different startup talent. And it was through that network um, that I had a relationship with First Round Capital, who ultimately, when the role opened at KBS, recommended me for the role, and I was recruited from there. So I remember getting an email that that's basically saying, you know, we know your background is more digital media and marketing. Have you thought about transitioning into venture? At which point I was like, yes, <laughs> I have thought about transitioning into venture. And, you know, it's, it's kind of really come full circle because back when I was on the agency side um, at Zenith, we had a corporate venture arm um, called Viviki Ventures, and I had wanted to get involved, you know, and, and I sort of had this vision that, because I had been working with startups on the side, and I had this vision that, you know, our, our venture arm should really be attached to our core business, which is media and marketing working with brands. And there's so much value that we could bring to the table as marketers to really help them with their strategy, help connect them with brands, help them get pilot tests, commercialize their product, things like that. So I, I kind of had this vision that I wanted to create this infrastructure between the two. And the feedback I got, again, looking back, it was about five years ago, was just we're not even involved in the venture arm. It's completely separate. You know, focus on these large deals with these large media agencies. And I was just like, this is not where I'm going to spend the next 10, 20 years of my career. Um, so that's really what we're getting to build at KBS. Well, it's incredible. And, and I think, you know, for people listening and thinking about their own careers, yeah. it's, it's being able to see and, and pay attention to bigger trends. The signals. Trusting your gut. Yeah. Because you've, you know, you've done that putting yourself in a position of taking risk. And heck, it would be nice to have, you know, in some ways, it'd be nice to have the job that, you know, you have for 30 years and you go in yeah, and you do your... it doesn't your, happen anymore. just doesn't happen. So yeah. you've got to be so aware and see what's, see what's going on. All right. KBS is? So we're a corporate VC. So we're the venture arm of MDC Partners and KBS. MDC Partners is a large uh, agency holding company, publicly traded. We own about 46 agencies around the world, servicing about 1,500 clients. Um, so KBS is one of the largest companies under that umbrella. Our core business is we're a global advertising agency. So we work with brands like Harman and BMW and um, Vanguard, all in the capacity of their digital media, creative, CRM, brand strategy, web development. So our venture arm sits under that umbrella. And so why, why did they think they need a venture arm? Excellent question. So our venture arm started in 2011, really with the intention of investing in entrepreneurs and technologies that are changing Madison Avenue. So Madison Avenue in New York City uh, is, is one of the focal points of the advertising world. Things are changing so quickly that, you know, a lot of times the companies we see aren't going to make it to agencies for another 12, 18, sometimes 24 months. So you really have to have some skin in the game to really get a seat at the table with some of these entrepreneurs and technologists that are dramatically transforming the industry. Um, so right now, to date, we have 15 active companies in our portfolio. Um, we pretty much exclusively focus on seed round investments. So um, usually we're not the first money in, so we're after an angel round, but we like to be part of the first institutional round, investing with other venture capitalists and other strategics. Um, so we look at companies typically around um, marketing SaaS, marketing automation, data and analytics, um, e-commerce, um, looking at more and more things around AI. So, so a nice red th thread to think about is how is this technology really 
has does it have direct implications for brands and how they really identify, interact, and retain their customers? There's so many new ways to communicate with brands. There are so many new ways to understand your customer that we want to really be at the forefront of these technologies to make our clients smarter, um, which is really a, a, a differentiation point of a lot of corporate VCs. Um, and just, you know, I'm going to stop you there. Why as an entrepreneur would you want, there's been a, you know, explosion of yeah. corporate VCs. Oh my gosh. Wow. Over 127 new ones have cropped up in the last two years. Wow. Crazy. So why as an entrepreneur, as a startup, would you may, why you may want to have your money, mm-hmm. your uh, corporate versus traditional VC? Yeah. So, so first of all, I think it is always incredibly important to have a balanced cap table, to have a balanced group of investors, because it really just, it takes a village to build a company. You want to have a really well-rounded and balanced group of investors that you're working with. From our standpoint, we're really brought into the investment opportunity as a strategic investor. So we have a whole arsenal of brands where our main value add is that we're able to connect those startups with different commercial opportunities to help them get customer introductions, domain expertise, first-to-market opportunities, better understand their, better understand their story for Madison Avenue. Because a lot of the times when we meet with founders, because we invest in early stage, a lot of times they'll be more technical um, or they'll have more of a product or engineering background. So when we can come in with our marketing lens and really look at their business differently and work as an extension of their team, we can really help position their story for Madison Avenue to set their set themselves up for success from a customer point of view. I'm just actually sitting here thinking as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking Mad Men, and really we should be having a smart <laughs> martini. And I'm assuming well, none of that. that one. <laughs> I missed that memo. <laughs> well, so I, we obviously, um, obviously um, miss that. What's um, the geographic scope of the investments you're making? So we we predominantly invest in the U.S. Um, so I'd say the bulk of our investments are East Coast based. We have a couple that are in San Francisco. But one thing we love is we love finding West Coast companies that are slowly making their way out east. Um, New York City in general, there's, there's just such an amazing, vibrant startup community that's so supportive, that is so collaborative. Um, but that being said, there's obviously a ton of great talent on the West Coast. Or also there's some amazing startup talent coming out of Portland, Seattle, Boulder, Austin. Um, anybody that thinks they're they're seeing everything just looking at San Francisco, New York, you're, you're scratching the surface. But um, uh, I'm thinking, so Madison Avenue, obviously here in New York, clients are here. Any customers other, are here. Your and, customers and, are here. Uh, any other reason for you as the VC that wants the startups here? So, so we do find that it's easier to build a relationship with them when they're present. Um, so we like to know that they're at least going to be setting up a New York presence. Like I mentioned, if it's San Francisco and they're making their way out east, if it's a Tel Aviv or London Star, we want them to be setting up a headquarters in New York. And that really comes from the relationship. And the relationship between the investors and the founders is such a unique, special, fascinating type of relationship that, you know, when they're in your backyard— um, you just get to know them better. You can do impromptu breakfasts. You can drop by their office to get like that. Having that FaceTime just really helps build the relationship and, and build the trust, which I think is really a important foundation of a startup investor relationship. You are such a mentor and so Aww, thank uh, you. helpful to startups in this community. So I really want to. You were the you know one of the VCs. I really wanted to ask these these questions too. So um, you know, guiding founders, what are the questions they should be asking investors 
besides will you lead my round? Oh my gosh. And that uh, if you have to ask will you lead my round, you're probably not. It's probably not going to work out. Um I 110% believe that founders need to be interviewing the the investors just as much as we're doing diligence on them. Um so a key thing that I tell all founders to do is ask the ask the investor to talk to four four CEOs in their portfolio. I think they should talk to two that are doing really well, that are either they've exited or they're a sustainable business now, and ask to talk to two that failed. Because the reality is we all probably have them. And um, I think you learn so much more about the character trait of the investor, learning about how they interacted with the CEO and how they treated the company when it was in distress, as opposed to, I mean, when things are rosy, like... You know, you're popping bottles, and I, I mean, founders do not pop bo- bottles, to clarify. But um, Oh, yeah, it's a party. It's, it's a party. Good. Yeah, it's definitely how things work, yeah. But um, I think you just learn so much more about the character traits of investors when companies aren't doing well. Because you can't fire an investor, and you have to be so careful about who you take money from. And you have to remember that this this is could probably last longer than a marriage. And it's not always going to be rosy, and there's going to be bumps, and it's like, that's fine. But it's how you react and respond, and are you accessible, and are you supportive, or, or are you are you counterproductive to the situations, and are you solutions-oriented? And and sometimes the, the CEOs just need to vent, and you just need to listen, and that's okay if that's what they need at that point. But um, That's I such great—that like, like, is such great advice. You, so, so— Telling the entrepreneur, right, you, you're interviewing the VC as much as they're interviewing yeah. you. Talk to portfolio companies. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, what else should they be asking? How long does the process take? If you've said, yes, I'm going to invest in this company, like from, from when you meet them yeah. to when you decide to go to due diligence to when you're going to your investment committee, yep. like how long does that all take? What should I expect as a founder? So every fund is different. For us, we try to get it done in about six weeks. From first meeting through diligence, you want to close quickly. So it's about two months. And when you, so call it about two months. But CEOs should allot at least four to six months to fundraise. You should never stop fundraising. You should always be building relationships. You should always be keeping investors in touch. You should be having coffee, getting feedback. You know, they say, ask a VC for money, you'll get feedback. Ask them for feedback, you'll get money. So you need to constantly be building that relationship over time. Um, for us as a corporate VC, our our process is a little different. Um, so corporate VCs, we invest off the balance sheet, which the majority of corporate VCs do. Um, which can mean that sometimes business conditions just impact your ability to make investments. Um, so our process also is, is we also care more about the strategic value that we can add to the company and that our clients will get out of this technology more so than the financial returns. Of course, we want financial returns and we want to understand that the company can be scalable and that there'll be a nice exit opportunity there. But at the end of the day, I mean, looking at corporate VCs, if you look at a Google or a Dell, you know, if they own a 10% equity stake at a company that sells for $200 million— Google will probably make more money before that before that check even clears. Right. So it's it really is more about that relationship with the founder, understanding their technology, understanding how does it integrate and fit into their overall ecosystem. Um, so a lot of times, corporate VCs will either one um, have their CEO or their CFO be approving their investments. So also very different than traditional venture capitalists, where it's really usually just a partner decision. Um, and we also will usually integrate our business units into our diligence process. So sometimes if it takes longer than six or seven weeks, we'll just be at the mercy of scheduling. 
Um, but usually if it's a data company, we'll want them to meet with our head of analytics. Social company, we'll want them to meet with our head of social. And that really is is part customer check to see, is this something differentiated? Is it something they're already using? Is it something that we could fit in our tech stack or bring to clients? And part of it is, will this be a fit into our ecosystem? Um, so really, de- I would say it really depends. And, and on the balance sheet, that is a, that's affecting um, approval process. That's affecting the amount you're able to invest. Is it, it, can. If, is it affecting the timing of when you can make investments it as can. well? It can. So, so I believe it's about, uh, I believe about 30%, based on the research that I had published with First Republic Bank and um, CB Insights, is about 30% of corporate VCs are opportunistic versus the other ones which have a dedicated venture fund. So if you have a dedicated venture fund, you kind of know how much you're able to deploy every year. It's carved out. But if you're opportunistic, it's kind of like, okay, I can make investments. Maybe I won't make investments. And it's not like it's it's a little bit more ad hoc. Um, so absolutely. I mean, if, if your CFO of a publicly traded company is approving your investments, he's got a lot of other stuff to deal with. Then me constantly be like, so I need this follow, follow on to get done. Um, so it's just something to be mindful of. It's it's not bad. VC, corporate VCs are in about... 20% of deals now, it, it, it comprised about 14% of, of capital. Um, so it's obviously a very reliable and, and um, prevalent source of capital in the market. But founders just need to be aware of some of these different nuances that can impact their fundraising. Again, sometimes if it's fourth quarter and we need to show more money on the balance sheet, I might ha- I'm probably going to have a hard time pushing an investment through in December. And I might say, can, can we close on January 1? Is that going to be acceptable to you? So I think that the founders need to be asking these questions. Um, always come prepared to know who you're meeting with. I mean, we were talking before about what questions to ask. Um, you should never go into a meeting with a VC without knowing, number one, are they writing checks right now? <laughs> because some VCs will, will be, you know, raising a new fund or they might be outside of their commitment period. So know if they're writing checks right now, if it's more of an exploratory meeting. Know what stage they're investing in. Know what sector they're focus on, focusing on. Know if they lead rounds. Know a couple of startups in their portfolio. So most investors are, are very public. You know, they're out speaking. They're doing podcasts. They're blogging. They're tweeting. You can kind of get a general sense of what they're all about. So if a company emails me that's a Series B biotech company, it's like, come on, come on, man. It's like, <laughs> this is not a good use of your time. It's not a good use of my time. Let's just Let's just keep it real. I'm sure it's a lovely company, but... It doesn't reflect well on you as an entrepreneur from a time management standpoint of really having a targeted investor list to know who, not only whose advice and guidance you want to listen to, but who's going to be able to add the most value to your business based on their network and expertise. I'm always surprised by entrepreneurs who put so much research and time into their product and how it fits in a market or solves a problem and how that complete diligence crashes when it comes to finding investors. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's I almost shocking it's to me. Because at the other point of it is, is there is a lot of information out there, and every VC does have, you know, who they've invested in. Yeah, and it's, you know, pull the threads and figure out who these people are and what definitely. they've done. Ask the questions. Definitely, definitely. Ask the questions. I mean, if a, if a, if a founder says, um, you know, what, what's, what stage you invested, I'm like, Really? You just go to our website and it's on the it's on the homepage in one sentence. Like if you can't take five minutes and and, and fairness that goes both ways. I I try to always be prepared for every meeting of the startup and read their deck beforehand so you can have a 
intelligent conversation. So it, it does go both ways. You don't always get a chance to do that because you just usually will have a, a pile that you need to get through. Um, but I think it's just it's common business etiquette that you want both parties to be prepared for the meeting to have a productive conversation. Um, and it goes back to things like reputation and relationships. And, and the startup community is so small and usually it's so collaborative that, that chances are you're going to have some connections in common with some of their portfolio company. And whether it's asking them for a warm introduction or just asking how it is to interact with them. Um, you know, I, I, people always say, like, what, what makes a good VC? Um, what does make a good VC? Oh, God. Was, was that like a sentence spike? <laughs> <laughs> um, that was, that's funny. But um, I, I, I do believe that there's it's, – it's obviously a combination of art and science. And I, I do believe that it's uh, – there's also there's, – there's skills and then there's character traits, Right. And skills can be learned and practiced and mastered, and, and that comes from experience, right? Um, but then I, th- I think there's a very human part of VC, and, that, and that's something that I, I really like. And that comes from just genuinely enjoying helping people and genuinely being a connector and being able to think about your network and think about their business and make those connection points for the founder. And it comes from being supportive, and it comes from... Um, I, I, because I think about this a lot, and I've kind of internalized this as I, I need to be able to have unconditional love and conditional like for my CEOs. And it's kind of, it's, it's a funny way to think about it, but these are relationships that can last seven, eight, nine, ten years again. And, and so there's going to be bumps, and it, and it becomes, okay, I don't have to like you today. If you're behind on your revenue targets or if the product launches three weeks late or you made a bed higher or you didn't pull me into something sooner because then it becomes my problem but I still love you and we'll get through this <laughs> and, like, and like in two weeks we'll be fine but like you have to be able to have you can't have that with everybody and you have to be able to have that type of relationship to really make it a successful relationship that's such a great way of putting it but let's okay. Let's talk about your life as a VC because I think you've really hit on this in terms of really wanting to help people. Yeah. Um, how many companies are you kind of like screening and looking at annually? So we looked at. I, I actually just did these numbers um, a few weeks ago. So we screened four hundred and ninety six companies last year. Okay, and from four hundred ninety six. When you say screening, what do you mean? Reviewed decks um, or met with in person. Okay, and from- I would say I would I would actually even if I want to pulse it down a little bit of the four hundred and ninety six that we screen, we met in person with about half of them. But okay, so you go from four ninety six down to half. Uh-huh. From that half, what happened? That what what did you where did where who went to like deeper diligence? Uh, I would say maybe about call it about a couple dozen went to deeper diligence. Okay. Which I would consider as multiple conversations, spending more time with that entrepreneur, not necessarily going to like full, full diligence. And then we went into like full, full diligence, writing investment memos was probably about seven. Seven. And then how many investments? Four four plus follow-ons. So we did about, I think, six or seven investments last year. Okay. So four plus some follow-ons from... yeah. And and the follow-ons were companies you had invested in previously. Okay, yeah. and and how long ago in terms of previously? Um, probably the last twelve to twenty-four months. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and it was a hit rate of about it was about two percent, about one and a half to two percent of companies that we met with, we funded. And which I, I think is pretty average. It's crazy. 
Yeah, well, like I, th- I think it's an important number because yeah. I'm not surprised by that. If you had told me the number was higher than that one to two percent, I'd be like, okay, that seems yeah unusual yeah, to me. Not, I mean, yeah. I don't know anyone I talked to that the the number for startups getting um, VC investment seems to sit around one or two percent, mm-hmm. and of one or two percent mm-hmm. out there get VC funding, and. Yep. There's sort of always this notion that VC is how companies happen. It's like, no, no. V- nope. <laughs> companies happy in spite of VC. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, on a weekly basis, like how often How often are you getting inbound deals or are you researching companies you want to talk to versus, you know, hitting, you know, demo events or pitch events or sort of these, you know, this very public facing part of yeah. the startup community? Yeah, so, so I would say... Um, for us, because we're a strategic, so the bulk of our deal flow comes through other investors, which again all ties back to the, to the reputation, your relationships. Um, so I would say probably about sixty five percent ish of our deal flow comes through other investors. Um, probably about twenty to twenty five percent comes from founders, um, and then the rest of it, I would say, comes from partners, um, inbounds, or research that we're doing on the street. Um, so I probably spend about. Probably about 50% of my time screening new investment opportunities, probably about 30, 35% of my time with our founders, um, and probably about 15% of my time with other investors. Talking about different market opportunities, talking about what you're looking at. It just the the venture community is so small. It is it is just such so many fascinating. I mean, that's like a whole other podcast. <laughs> but uh it, it's really true, and it is relationships, and you want to surround yourself with them with like-minded investors. Um, with supportive investors, with with investors, you know, add value, and again, are 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 supportive and add value to the company. Um, so you want to have those relationships, and you want to be sure that the value that you add is very apparent and that shines through for real. Because a lot of people say, well, "Hey, we do this and we do that and we do this," and all goes back to talk to the founders and really make sure they're putting their money where their mouth is. Yeah, sort of a prom a promise is just a promise. Yeah, you you, you need the action. They'll say a lot of things to get it to good companies. <laughs> Um, what do VCs look for in a founder? Do you have a, a checklist of here's yeah. the, here's the things that you look for? Definitely. Um, so one of the one of the main things that that I look for is really are they a good communicator? Um, and that to me is so important because that just shines through on so many different pieces of your business because you're constantly selling. You're constantly selling as a, as a founder CEO. So can you raise money? Can you really get investors to believe in your vision, believe this is a huge problem to solve, want to come on this journey for you? Can you communicate to the press? Can you tell the press, you know, why is this interesting? Why is this something that they should care about? Can you use it to recruit talent? Can you use it to bring on customers? Can you communicate to to bring on partners? So communication is just such a constant red thread that is so incredibly important to me. It's also, it's also, so it's almost like, do I like you? First of all, which sounds crazy, but it, but it's, again, this is a long-term relationship. Is this somebody I, I can work with and that I want to be helpful for? And then, and then it's, do I believe you? Do I believe this is a big problem that people want to solve and people want to pay for? Um, do I believe in your solution? So, you know, do I believe, okay, but you've convinced me that this is a big market, there's a need, there's a problem, um, but is this the right way to approach it? Are you thinking about it the right way to approach it? Because you don't want to get too attached to the idea because you know that's just going to evolve and change and iterate. Um, and then it becomes, can you execute? Are you the person that can execute this? Because sometimes you'll meet founders and be like, you are amazing, 
this company of yours, maybe not the best fit. Or you might some, see something where this company is just brilliant. Ah, oh, it's kind of a bummer that it's yours. So it, <laughs> So you so so it's like you need to calibrate and really reconcile these these two things because you want there to be company founder fit also because like that's really what becomes so so magical when you found this fit and you want to and you want to just be inspired by that person you want to you want it to be something that you can learn from and know that they'll learn from you and you can have that really open dialogue and you can have these really healthy debates um, but you know you want them to be to be coachable so CEOs they they are going to get advice from every which corner from uncles to investors to customers and you know it's really up to you as a CEO to be able to internalize all that and synthesize it and and figure out what's best for your business um you want to be profit driven you want to know that they're not just building a lifestyle business you want to know they're a builder um but i think another character trait that is just so incredibly important at, at least to me is is are they really self aware um and what i mean by that is we don't, we don't, ex- like, no founder is perfect. Nobody has, like, the full package. But but are they really aware of their deficiencies? And are they really, are they okay with it? Are they comfortable with it? And if they are, can they build the right team around them to make them whole and to make this the most all-star team possible um, and not have an ego about it? So, you know, maybe you're just not a seller. Maybe it makes you really uncomfortable. That's okay. But bring in a rock star head of sales and make sure they're training you and making you more comfortable and helping you improve that skill of yours. Um, so being really self-aware is, is super important. Um, balanced founding teams, also incredibly important. Um, typically, you don't want just one solo Lone Ranger CEO. Um, we do like to see balanced um, founding teams, two or three people. Um, personally for me, I like to see, um, somebody that really has a business mindset. I like to see a technical co-founder and, um, and I, I also actually really like to see a a sales and marketing person, um, which is a little more unconventional, but, but I'll tell you why. Um, because typically if if you have a, a technical lead as a CEO or a product lead as a CEO and they're talking to customers and a customer is going to say no, like 17 times. Right. And which is fine. It's expected. But a lot of times, if, if you have a technical CEO or a technical product lead, um, well, obviously the product lead will be technical, but you know what I mean. Um, they'll hear from the customers like, oh, well, when we build this feature, like then they'll definitely buy it. Or when, when we make this tweak, then like for sure we're, we're going to close all the deals, which is not necessarily true. Right. And then you're spending a ton of money on dev resources, spending a ton of time. You're probably overbuilding as opposed to a sales and marketing person. They hear more. I'm not telling my story right. I need to articulate my value proposition better. Maybe my like positioning isn't right. So they'll craft more and really think through more. What is that narrative to help me sell better without overbuilding on dev skills? So I think like having that blend of skills that really complement each other is is really critical. And having worked together before also a huge plus. Yeah, I would say because I think knowing people can row the boat in the right direction Definitely. and 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 have worked out some of these um, kinks and personality traits and types. Yeah, um, it's a little strange if you have a, a successful serial CEO and nobody from their previous company came on this journey for their next company. Yeah, a bit of it's a, a red flag. Weird. It's a little weird. Yeah, little bit yeah. of a red red flag. Yeah. Um, I mean, the New York ecosystem, I want to say pretty diverse, uh, but again, you know, you 
We've got we got we've got a nice group of women out here who are um, investing and VCs and, and taking active mm-hmm. roles. Uh, sort of two things I want to hit on. Any advice for female founders in terms? And you know, you may say, "Hey, it's the same advice I give to male founders mm-hmm. in terms of pitching investors." But any particular advice uh, to female founders in terms of? pitching and and pitching primarily to investors who are male. Yeah. I mean, the story of my life is having dinner with like 17 guys. So it just, it's changing and it's evolving and, and it's moving in the right direction slowly, but it, but it is. Um, you just have to be bold and you just have to go for it. You just have to be confident and own it and recognize that you are there for a reason. Your domain expertise should speak for itself. Your business metrics should speak to itself. There are a million and one stats about why women CEOs and blended CEOs, um, blended teams, I should say, perform better. The uh, research that First Run Republic did about how um, companies with a woman on their management team performed, I think, what, 60% better? Just some incredible stat. Um, I think it... it Look, I've I've heard so many just unfortunate stories over the years of meeting with female CEOs, and you know, you just you just gotta shake it off, and you just have to go in there and own it, and again, recognize that you are in control of the situation, and you have to be confident, be articulate, and if the product and market and traction is there, yep, mic drop, exactly, and it, but it's just don't let them make you uncomfortable because. You're there for a reason, and you're building probably a phenomenal business that deserves to be there. And and stick there and focus on it. And I was going to say, in yeah. terms of owning it and being confident and um, having the mic drop, that is a, a good uh, segue to the um, elevator ride you and I found ourselves on. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. It was well. I want to say that that I think you know. So you know the story. You know, Jess yeah. and I were in an elevator and leaving a event for investors at a law firm and the male investor in the elevator asked if we worked at the law firm. Yeah. So even yeah. we are not immune. Yeah. Definitely. It's like, so do you work here? No. Oh, are you an entrepreneur? No. And then that there was like a, a second and a half of, of a, a look of complexity on his face. I said, no, I'm an investor. Oh, really? <laughs> that was kind of the... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, investors can look like us, and, yeah. and getting that as investors in and of itself was like so funny. But you you have to be a, you have to be confident, Absolutely. you know. And I, and I just remember in that moment thinking, thank God I'm going through this with you because owning who you were, having the confidence, having that you know that smart answer, and not letting. Um, not letting it either shake you or wanting to leap across, you know, the elevator right. and murder this twit. Right. Um, who thought, you know, here's two women in an elevator leaving a law firm from an investor in bed. And they must <laughs> be secretaries. Five, around five o'clock, probably. <laughs> yeah, they must be secretaries. Um, but uh, you know, yeah, and, and I think the, the, the sort of the advice to female founders is, guess what? It happens to all of us. Yeah. So it's not that it's not going to yeah. happen. It's how you're going to react to this. Exactly. Exactly. And um, that's just it. You just have to keep your head up and keep trucking. Keep 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 moving through all of this. Um, so 
looking at you, you know, you've, you're, you're always kind of looking to the next things and, and trends and keeping an eye on technology. What's getting you excited with technology right now? So, um, one thing that the two, obviously two things that are, that are getting me really excited right now. Um, one is just these, these new, um, communication channels that brands now have. Um, so anything through web push, which uh, Roost is doing, which is all around push notifications for the web. So again, creating a, a new CRM system, which can be for brands. Um, and also using AI to create content. Super interesting right now. Um, so there's one investment we made recently called message.ai. Um, and it's, it's leveraging human-assisted AI to manage one-to-one conversations at scale. And this was so interesting and exciting for us because... Kind of had a little bit of deja vu uh, going back to my time on the agency side. And um, just looking back around, it was 2006, 2007. And Facebook was really starting to take off. Everybody was starting to say, when are you going to monetize the newsfeed? We want to throw banner ads in the newsfeed. And, you know, Facebook being Facebook says, no, we're not going to do that. But we're going to launch these things called brand pages. And brands will be able to communi- create a community. And brands all the time, what do you mean we're going to create a brand? I don't know. I don't know how to create this. I don't know how to manage this. I don't know how to recruit this. This is crazy. And what happened? And came Buddy Media with a very turnkey enterprise solution $800 million later to Salesforce. We're now seeing a very similar cycle happening on messaging, where brands don't really have a messaging presence. And Facebook Messenger is finally reaching that critical mass when people are saying, how are you going to monetize Messenger? What are you going to do? When can we get let in? And again, Facebook says, we're not going to be throwing banner ads in the, in the feed, but we're going to release Messenger IDs for brands. So for the first time, brands are going to be able to interact on Messenger. They made that announcement a little less than a year ago. Same type of trajectory where brands are like, I can't manage this like influx of messaging at, at scale. You know, if, if I'm tweeting with Delta about my seat being bad or whatever it might be, I don't want a response 52 minutes later. I want a response immediately. Consumers want a response on messaging immediately. And that's a very different fundamental shift in terms of what consumers expect from messaging. So message.ai is essentially doing that same type of enterprise solution to allow brands to be able to reach those consumers at scale. So it's really um, a big insight is that the majority of these customer services requests are repetitive scenarios that can all be automated. See, so, that's, that's such a great, like, just like having this light bulb moment here completely. that, that you know. So much clarity around that one. Yeah, Delta or American Airlines or Macy's or whoever the brand is, their customer service department aren't being jerks when they don't get, yeah, you know, instantly <laughs> back back on your tweet. Right. But it's the technology and. It's the human bandwidth. I mean, if you think about it. How can a, a brand respond to thousands and thousands of people around the world going to one central Twitter Twitter handle or one central messenger ID? You just you don't you're not set up. You don't have the human bandwidth to be able to manage that at scale. So having a turnkey solution that automates a lot of those for store for tracking, product availability, store hours, um, upsells, retard. I mean it. It makes complete sense. So it's, um, so it's reminding me of that uh, New York Times magazine article where I think it sort of surprised people where offensive content on the web 
is not just magically eliminated. There are teams of people in the Philippines who have to look (laughs) at these horrific images and and take them down or this horrific content and take it down versus, you know, some technology magically erasing it. I know. And it's it's also the other sector that's so exciting. It's just the evolution of content um, with the rise of influencer content, with the rise of native content. It's... We're fundamentally changing the way that brands and companies interact with their customers. And it's becoming more of being part of the conversation instead of pushing the conversation. Um, So I believe influencer marketing is just going to continue to explode. It's really crowded. Um, There's a couple that I I think are doing it really well. Revfluence is one of them out in San Francisco. Um, But it's becoming something that there needs to be this infrastructure. There needs to be this tech stack to be able to better identify, manage, um, measure and interact with influencers the, the way that they're comfortable doing. It doesn't have to be a monetary exchange. It could be through experiences. It could be through product. But that authentic and really organic way of showcasing brands and being part of the conversation is going to continue to really transform the way creative is done. And we welcome that day. Absolutely. We welcome that day, though the old madman ants do make me, add, <laughs> make me laugh. All right, I want to ask you some questions that we got from listeners and who, you know, sent yeah. in and some, some really practical stuff. Great. Uh, so what is your advice on whether or not you need an MBA to be successful in VC? Uh, um, I don't think you need one. Ooh. I will say. Radical um, answer. Radical answer. Uh, things are getting crazy. No, and, and, uh, and I'll tell you why. I, it kind of, I think, goes back to, to what I was saying about skills and character traits. Obviously, an MBA is super helpful. I, I think one of the, the most incredibly important things you get out of an MBA is the network, is the alumni network and the connections. But being a VC, especially an early stage VC, when there's not as many business metrics, there's not as many spreadsheets, it does become about relationships. And it does become, do you have domain expertise? And do you have a network of people that you can connect them to? And have you been on the operator side? Which you don't necessarily get that skill being on the MBA side, maybe for for later stage. When it, there are when when there is more number crunching involved, but I'm gonna say you do not need an MBA to be a VC. Uh, you know what? And I'm gonna take um, or an entrepreneur. Oh, this is gonna get me in trouble. Sometimes, uh, you know, you're gonna ask better questions than get sent in. No, right? no but know? this is parlaying well, off of the MBA because sometimes we'll see MBA CEOs that that like will follow a very systematic approach they've been taught to building a business so it's so it's almost like sometimes we see ceos on on the startup side that you can tell they've been programmed a certain way and they've been taught a certain way into what is correct and there's not always necessarily rules a lot of times it is fly by the seat of your pants but for example like do not ask an investor to sign an nda i don't know if that's top but just don't do it it's come on don't do it well when, when we have an entire Industry that it's is built gonna... on relationships and trust. Exactly. You've now put a legal document in my face that says, right. I don't trust you. Right. Not only that, but it comes down to the execution. I'm probably going to see an, I, the same idea six times. Right. But it comes down to the execution, which goes back to team. Absolutely use MBA programs um, for the network, um, but not necessary for a career in, to be a founder or a VC. Well, you know what? Let, I'm go off, Go off some of these... Questions that were were sent in. Do you think you can teach entrepreneurship? So, so we have a program at KBS that we've reshaped the curriculum called the Fellows Program. And how the program was originally structured, 
um, it was teaching entrepreneurship and teaching venture capital. I think you can teach some fundamental mindsets and building blocks into building a company, but you need to get out and do it. So the way that um, we've structured this curriculum at KBS, which this is a class we teach twice a year, um, it's all employees around our network that apply to be part of this program, and, and we pick about 20 to 25 of them. And how we've restructured the curriculum is more about turning ideas into businesses. So what is that process? So, so the first question, and this is always really entertaining for me, will be like, who has, who has an idea for a business? And people will be like, I have an idea. they be like, well, you're all going to fail. Because that is not how good businesses start. It is not about an idea. It is about identifying a problem that you want to solve. And I think a lot of people um, don't realize, number one, how hard it is to build a business. And, you know, you have shows like Shark Tank, which I think have done wonders to inspire entrepreneurship around the country. But people don't realize it is so hard to build a business. And it's not just about having an idea. And founders just, they wear different goggles on how they see the world you know they see things that are broken they see things that are inefficient and then they obsessively want to fix it and like that's the inspiration for their company it's not about i have an idea that i want to get rich and have it sold at walmart it's i want to fix this problem so the first exercise we do in the class is is we have them keep a problem log um, and this is really inspired by the y combinator how to start a startup class which is excellent and i highly recommend everybody um check it out online um, so that's kind of the first step that we take. And then we have them go through an exercise after they've zeroed in on a problem they want to focus on for the semester. Then we take them through market diligence, how to really understand your market, how to figure out who is your customer, how much would they be willing to pay? Um, how big of a market opportunity is this? And then after they go through that step then and look at their competition, then we have them look at, um, customer validation. So we have them do like these really cute surveys of, People in their network, would you pay for this? Is this a pain point? Um, how are you currently solving that pain point? Um, and it ultimately culminates with this demo day that we have them pitch to our senior management, and then they get a prize, and we call it like a founder's fee gift certificate, um, which I don't make them take me with them because that would be weird. But um, one thing that's really special that we do throughout the curriculum is we weave our founders into the curriculum. So I might, market, I might lecture about product market fit for 30 minutes, um, and then I'll bring in one of my founders and really have them talk about what was their journey, how did they figure it out. Um, so it really gives them just a really authentic perspective on the challenges of being an entrepreneur. It helps build the relationship with the entrepreneur. Um, it helps them see a different dimension of the business. So we've had founders talk about how they got accepted into Y Combinator and what that experience was like to how they're running out of cash and then had to figure out how to pivot the business um, to how the business evolved and changed and iterated. Um, so it really brings entrepreneurship to life. So when you say, can you teach entrepreneurship? I think you can teach a mindset and I think you can teach people the steps they need to take to, to tease out the idea, so to speak. Um, and then I think a lot of it is surrounding yourself with people and experiences to, to really internalize and understand and decide if it's right for you. Because entrepreneurship isn't right for everybody. It is it is like I said, the one of the hardest jobs ever, and I think you have to be really mentally prepared um, and really have a good support system around you to take that on. I think it's such a great program. What a great way to I would say engage employees, and I'm mean, yeah. saying because having more entrepreneurial employees is a big thing. Definitely. Um, one other question that came in that I think would be really helpful. 
um, because you and I hear this a lot from female founders who have pitched rooms full of male VCs and they get the unfortunate, I don't get what you're doing, (laughs) right? What's your... Let me ask my wife. Yeah. Hey, this sounds like a cool product, but I don't know who would use it. Maybe I'll ask my wife. (laughs) What's your advice to a female founder if and when they face that reaction from a VC? Stick to the facts. I mean, the reality is, is it's it's shame on the VC. If, I mean, part of being a VC is being curious and being open-minded and being able to see what those possibilities could be. Um, if you face it, you go back to the facts and go back to the go back to the market. How many women want to use this? How many women identify this as a pain point? How many women would pay for this solution? How are they currently solving it? And take it back to okay, you can ask your wife, who I'm sure is lovely, and I'm sure will have a great reaction to this. Or you could also refer to my 2,000-person focus group that I completed, which here's all the research from that. So I think it's unfortunately just naturally something that's going to happen from investors that it is what it is. But that's why I say go back to the facts and um, just really let the data speak for themselves. That's that's but, such, like, such good advice. But the job of a VC is to be open-minded and to think through what could this market be in five years. I wish I could say that had I seen Uber in the angel round, I, I would have invested. But, like, I probably would have passed. Yeah, well, we have a mutual friend who passed on Google. So, I you know. know. <laughs> oh, my God. I well, love and and, and uh, who am I thinking of? Um, Alan Patrikoff. He passed on Starbucks. Listen, yeah. we all, we all, we all yeah. pass on things. But, again, it's about sticking to what you know, where you think you can add value, um, where you think you have a network that can help this entrepreneur. Definitely. It's not just, did you pick the right stock? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's just recognizing what could be in five years. I remember <laughs> I remember, uh, I was I was coming home from San Francisco, and I was getting into JFK probably about, I don't know, it was like one in the morning. So obviously I was exhausted. Looked at the cab line, like disastrous cab line. So I call an Uber. My Uber comes. I get in the car. It's again, it's around 1 a.m., he offers me chocolate, which is the best. I love when when Uber drivers are like, do you want some chocolate? Um, and I started to to like fall asleep a little bit. And I, and I remember just thinking to myself, it's one in the morning. I just got in a car with a stranger, took candy from him, and I am completely confident that I'm going to get home safely, which is just mind-blowing to think about that five, six years ago. Like, we're not talking about that long ago. You disobeyed everything your mother in Minnesota told you. (laughs) (laughs) I can see my my mother saying, well, this is what my mom says. My mom says, Jesse, do you see this white hair? This is when you went to Nicaragua. Do you see this white hair? This is when you did this. So, yeah, I'm sure this would have added another couple white hairs. But when you just internalize it like that and think through some of the things that are part of our daily life now, it's just... I don't know if I would have been able to to spot that shift in behavior five, six years ago. And that's what you really need to be able to think through and do. As as, as, a, as a VC, there it is. Your investments will speak for them for themselves. All right. We have this section of questions we call pay it forward. Okay. It's kind of rapid fire. So you might want to have some editorial on your answers. And I'm going to say to you, please don't Zip provide. It. Okay. Zip it. Okay. Uh, so here we go. Let's go with pay it forward. What are your go-to sources of information that you use every day? Um, Strictly VC, Excellent Newsletter, and uh, CB Insights. Okay. Where do you discover new information? 
So I've gotten really into podcasts lately. Uh, I love the A16Z podcast, always really interesting, and um, uh, 20-Minute VC podcast and the Pitch Deck podcast I think are all excellent. And now this one. And now this one, of course. <laughs> now you're going to have a new one, one to listen to, add to, your, add to your new really information source. What book are you reading? I am reading From Good to Great um, by Jim Collins right now, which is such a classic. Um, it has really reframed my thinking um, with the way that they approach uh, business case studies. So highly recommend not only how they look at the businesses, but also how they look at CEOs and, and leaders. Definitely no, so sometimes old classic advice is, is good advice. Uh, what conversation should we be having that we aren't? Um, so is there things in terms of startup world, technology, investing that, I mean, we see it all the time, the sort of the clutter of conversation. Um, but is there a conversation in the startup world that we aren't having that we should be? How can, how can startups and agencies collaborate better? Okay, there we go. I might look for something for you on that. <laughs> Who are the people that most influenced you in your career? Um, I don't know if specific individuals, but anyone that I just really respect and resonate their their passion and staying true to good, honest business ethics that are passionate about what they do and really demonstrate um, that just really demonstrate good character yeah. are constantly inspiring to me and things I strive to to do well. What is the best advice you ever received? Be yourself, which I think, which I, which I know sounds kind of cliche, but um, I think the reality is, is we're we're constantly weaving in and out of different business relationships and different business conversations. Oh, now I'm going off. I'll keep it short. Um, but you're going to be more comfortable and confident when you find that personal and professional balance. So be yourself, and you're just going to be so much happier and have so many more productive, healthy relationships. Yeah, and I'm going to let you do that editorial because you're not the first person who's given that as, as the best advice with being yourself. What makes your work fun and rewarding? Oh, my gosh. I, I just I love, seeing, I love seeing our companies do well. I love knowing that an introduction I was able to make helped lead them to a business, but, it, but it's very important that investors recognize and founders are like we can open doors but the ceo is the one that does all the work to close the deal so celebrate that celebrate them and and it's just recognize that you can contribute but they're the ones doing all the heavy lifting um and celebrate with people ah i love seeing other people succeed yeah so uh when you reach into wardrobe for something to be bold and badass what is it i'm gonna say a good statement necklace something that like gives a little pop yeah I, I don't disagree with that. And how do you pay it forward for women? Um, you know, I, I try to just be accessible. I try to just be as accessible as possible. And it, it might take a few days or even a couple weeks to get on the calendar. But I, I always try to make a conscious effort to be able to carve out time. Um, tweeting is always better. DM me, email me, LinkedIn me, um, email me. You're, you're, um, you're be one, accessible. You're one of those VCs who is out there. You're very public. Very yeah. public, very yeah. accessible. If someone says they can't find you, then I say they're not looking hard yeah. enough. Yes. yes. I want to thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. I really appreciate it. Glad to add to your podcast list. <laughs> On the next episode of Broad Mike, we will be talking with world-class venture capital investor and technology thought leader, Jalik Jobanputra general partner of her own micro-VC fund, Future Perfect, Jalik is one of the most sought-after experts on some of the cutting-edge technologies making news today. 
such as Bitcoin, blockchain, robots, and artificial intelligence. Jalik will share her experience as a venture investor, including what qualities she looks for in entrepreneurs she funds. Thank you for listening to Broadmic. We welcome your feedback. Find us on Facebook, where you will have show notes and additional references for a deeper dive into today's topic. Please subscribe on iTunes so you will never miss an episode. Also, review our podcast on iTunes, which will help other listeners discover Broadmic and grow the Broadmic community. Broadmic is produced by Christy Mirabel with editing by John Marshall Media. Our executive producer is Sarah Weinheimer. Think broad.